Episode 139, Ginny Upal, author of the new book, In Action, Rethinking the Path to Results. And it happened kind of early in my career. So those are the best mistakes, right? You're not going to forget that in a hurry. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For more information about Ginny, her book, her work, a giveaway contest that she'll tell you about, and more, look in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake139. Thanks for listening. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven, and our guest today is Jenny Upal. She is the author of the new book called In Action, Rethinking the Path to Results. So Jenny is a technology and business leader with over 20 years of experience driving transformative growth at Fortune 500 North American companies. Most recently, she was vice president of strategy at a $12 billion North American retailer driving transformative growth through new category launches and innovative store experiences. Jenny grew up in Mumbai, India. She's a graduate of Florida International University and Harvard Business School. And then um, one other detail about her, she's been a practitioner of Vedic and Buddhist meditation and breathwork since 2008. So Jenny, first off, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thank you so much for having me, Mark. It's so good to be here. And I hope I said that correctly or close enough Vedic. You are. Oh, yes. Vedic is good. Yep. You got it. So um, breath work is something I I, I told Jenny just before we started recording. My wife and I tried that twice last year. And and for people who aren't familiar with breath work, um, before we get to the main topics here, Jenny, what's your elevator speech explanation of someone asked you, well, what is breath work? You know, there is an interesting correlation that we all know between our emotions and breathing. So when you're very tense or angry, you know, tend to breathe, breathe, breathe short. And when you're very relaxed, you have longer breaths. Turns out the reverse is also true, which is why when, you know, women are pregnant, they're encouraged to breathe a certain way. Or if you're very angry, somebody asks you to take a deep breath. The interesting, the reason why breath work as a daily practice is a good idea is because in the moment of tension, you may not remember unless somebody's there to tell you to take a deep breath. So by developing this daily practice or however often you do it, it's a way of regulating your emotions for the day, much like why you do strength training two or three times a week so that you will just automatically have a better posture as you go around the day. So that's the reason why breath work as its own thing, meditation is different, breath work is different and combined, they can be a pretty powerful exercise to do. Yeah, that's what we found. And having um, a facilitator, a trained uh, instructor or facilitator guiding you through um, that, that, that breathing was a very, um, you know, it was a powerful experience. So that's why. I'm sure. I'm glad you did it. Yeah. And and that was something brand new to me. So um, here's to to new experiences and and new practices. Um, But uh, Jenny's website to learn more about her and the book is JinnyUpal.com. There'll be a link in the show notes. 
And um, Ginny is um, kind enough to be doing a book giveaway contest, especially for my favorite mistake listeners. Um, Ginny, if you could, could you tell us a little bit more about how, how you're doing that? I'm just very happy to be doing this, Mark. Uh, I'm calling it the gratitude giveaway. This is my first book and uh, it's just been a marvelous experience. Um, The act of writing a book, which can be very intense. So I've had a lot of support from my community. And uh, so I'm doing a gratitude giveaway and it's a giveaway of a copy of the book as well as an invitation to an author talk with me. And the author talk is where I share my author journey and how I apply the lessons from the book while I was writing the book. I interviewed about 36 people across the world on how do they, their relationship with action and inaction. So I learned a few things and I tried them. (laughs) So I'll have a few stories to share. Well, good. We'll we'll have a chance to talk about the book. Again, it's titled In Action, Rethinking the Path to Results. And you can look again in the show notes for uh, a link to a form that will enter you into the contest. Um, So Jenny, thank you again for that. And congratulations. Thank you on the book's uh, release. Um, It's a very exciting time for you here. So um, as before we talk about the book and and the the topics um, in in that book, we always like to start with, um, I guess, the main question, or at least the starting point question, Jenny, what would you say is your favorite mistake? Um, There is a story I'll share, which is not in the book. And it happened kind of early in my career. So those are the best mistakes, right? You're not going to forget that in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Um, I had gotten promoted to a director level, which is considered senior role. And um, I had become promoted because I was very good at listening to people around me. I was a techie at that time and my role was a product manager. So I was good at listening and understanding the needs of the users, internal employees, and developing good solutions. So that a general, it was a general acknowledgement of that skill. In my new role, uh, the company was going through some major potential transformation, and there was this particular problem I was trying to solve. I came to the conclusion that this transformation is so fluid that I don't want to spend too much time and money building something from scratch. I want to reuse something from like a different part of the company. Mm-hmm. I thought that was brilliant, a very clever idea. I'll save mm-hmm. money, we'll go to market very quickly. And if the story changes, then I can evolve the solution. Turned out the tool was built for another merchant group. And the way we operated in the e-commerce world was very different. And it was not well received. I didn't go very far before I had to give up. The the real key lesson for me to learn was I was good at this, listening to people and knowing what's right. But in my hurry and urgent desire to come up with something quick, you know, I took action. Like I gotta, I gotta pick a lane, I gotta do something now. And I picked the wrong, the wrong option because I was in a hurry. So that was a good uh, humbling experience that just because I was good at something doesn't mean that I won't stop being good at it. If I override with my action bias. So that was a good lesson learned. Well, and it sounds like one of those early lessons that prompted a lot of thinking that that led to the research and, and the writing of the book. But um, back back to your story, Jenny. Um, what was your adjustment then when you said you, you, you had to give up? Did, did you then have to go get something built custom? Like, were, were you still involved in this project or were you pulled was was it 
the the type of misstep where you got pulled off of that? No, I stayed on. It it was not a career-limiting move, (laughs) thankfully. By then, the situation, the transformation journey got more intense, more involved, and decisions uh, indeed started getting slowed down. So many enough other things happened that this was, I moved on from this. Like that wasn't the biggest problem to solve anyway. Mm -hmm. The problem statement also changed. So it wasn't, it wasn't a disaster, but it was enough for me to get a wake up call that what did I just do? And why did I take Mm -hmm. that action? Now, do you think your own, looking back at it, was your own self-assessment of what happened the same as, you know, feedback you may have gotten from people higher up in the company or feedback you might have gotten from the internal customers that you were supporting? Had I not selected this existing tool, I would have built it Mm in-house. And I had built many other tools in-house. So the people who had, who were, you know, they were, their job was to build these tools in-house had wanted to do it. So they had felt disappointed with my choice. So they, in a way, they were vindicated. The problem statement itself changed. So it kind of became, the whole point became moot. Um, But yeah, they were always there to build it. I just chose not to leverage them like I had leveraged them earlier. So um, well, it's good that it, it wasn't career limiting or it doesn't sound like it was even limiting within that job, but it sounds like um, one of these formative moments that really got you thinking about this whole topic. And did, did you see a pattern in, you know, maybe being a little bit too quick to jump into action or, or having a bias for action? Or did you start seeing that maybe from others in, in your professional realm? In the book, I address a, uh, I talk about action bias, which is the tendency to take action, which is irrational means either it's not the right action to take or it's not the right time. And I dig into like, why do we do this? And one of the root causes I address is overconfidence. And it's a very thin line between confidence and overconfidence. In fact, it is people who are confident who are more likely to become overconfident. (laughs) And uh, there is a story I share. And actually, this story is not in the book. It didn't make the cut after the manuscript, but I would love to share. Perhaps this is Perhaps some people will identify with the protagonist. So the story is that of Ron Johnson, who was the CEO of JCPenney from 2011 until 2013. Before that, he was he's also the person credited with the iconic Apple Store experience mm-hmm. that I'm sure everybody knows. He worked with Steve Jobs. Before mm-hmm. that, he was successful in Target doing something you know brilliant. I'm a retailer, so I can appreciate just the moves he made, how how big and bold they were and how contrarian. And and I used to follow him. I still do. At JCPenney, he, again, took some bold action. And this time it backfired. The customers didn't like it. The stock price dropped 57% while he was the CEO. He was uh, let go by the board. And I interviewed him. And I know the story a bit more deeply because I was following it. But I asked him a simple question. We, We spoke for a bit. And I asked him, look, you're behavior, the way you showed up, which is making big, bold moves confidently, was the same. You were the same person in Apple, Target, and now JCPenney. But Apple and Target were a great success, a wild success, if I might say so. JCPenney was a failure. Why? And he said, 
the changes I was introducing were too big for the team that I inherited. I should have waited. I should have given it a year for them to get to know me and trust me. So his point was, right idea, wrong execution. So he should have slowed down. And that's what the thesis of my book is. If you want results, you might think it's action that will get me results. Sometimes it's a reflective pause or understanding the situation better that might get you better results. Well, it was yet another example of somebody who was so amazingly successful. And by the way, since then, he's moved on to his next venture, which just went public. So Hmm. it's a humbling reminder that mistakes aren't always a one and done. Like you are, we are susceptible to making a mistake because of overconfidence. And that's something to watch out for. Yeah. And I remember I just pulled up here. um, I had written a blog post about Ron Johnson's stint at JCPenney back in 2013. I'll I'll link to that in in the show notes. And just looking at this post here, it says like one of the things that I, I guess just didn't work, it was a bit of a backfire is that you know, it seems like JCPenney had really conditioned their customers to expect sales and clearance prices and and coupons. And he was trying to institute everyday pricing. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that the the early tests of that, um, there's a quote here, at least some critics said, there there was one large test that failed. And it sounds like he kept moving ahead with the strategy anyway. Is, is, Is that another way of explaining overconfidence? When you are overconfident, you are right. You stop taking input because you're so convinced. When you're confident, you take input. You might still dismiss it after careful deliberation, but the difference between confidently dismissing unnecessary information and neglecting to take it into account, they're two different happenings. Outwardly, it may seem the same thing, but they are completely different ways of being. And that's that's the lesson learned. When you're overconfident, you're going to barrel forward with what you think is the right action path, even when it's not. And you're ignoring all the signals that it's not. And I mean, it seems like overconfidence might be one of these personality traits or practices in business that works until it suddenly doesn't work. That you look at certain um, CEOs or executives or serial entrepreneurs, and they'll be celebrated for, you know, that there'll be uh, that overconfidence might be labeled visionary and that, you know, they, they, they plowed forward and then they were successful. And at some point, maybe their third or fourth venture um, that, that, that same game plan doesn't work anymore. So it seems like one of the challenges with overconfidence is that a lot of people might say, well, that, that works for me. You know, I'm over, sure. You, you might label me overconfident, but I'm really convinced <laughs> that, right. that 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 I'm right. Like, do do you ever like? I wonder if there's an opportunity to try to identify warning signs, or does it take a bit of a humbling failure, a mistake, uh, a crash and burn scenario to to make somebody rethink and wonder, huh, was this caused by overconfidence? Like everything in life, if you crash and burn, you've clearly learned a lesson. You're probably not going to forget anytime soon. Mm-hmm. I would prefer not to crash and burn to learn that lesson. (laughs) So the question is, what signals, what can you, what warning signals, like if, you know, on a a dashboard, like, is there an indicator that goes on to say overconfidence approaching? (laughs) What I have learned in my own journey, and I almost, I almost became overconfident in the journey of the book, 
um, my publisher had this idea of doing a pre-order campaign and they do it a certain way months before the book comes out, which is unusual. And the pre-orders are priced higher than the cost of the book because the people who sign up become part of the author journey. And I remember when I looked at that pricing, I was like, I don't know where this pricing comes from. It should be Mm -hmm. different. And I know pricing. You know, I went to Harvard Business School. (laughs) I know pricing. (laughs) And interestingly, around that time, I was a board advisor for a startup and I built a pricing model. So imagine how my head is full of, Mm. I know pricing. (laughs) So I debated a little bit with my publisher. They pushed back. They said, no, we know these prices. They've been tested and all that. And I started to get agitated. And I've come to, we all have to recognize our signals when are you going into a fight mode, which is unnecessary? And I know my signals, like in my, in my body, I'm agitated. Yeah. And that's when I know, what am I fighting with? What gives me the confidence that I know more about pricing books, which is not my area of mm-hmm. expertise? Why am I dismissing the publisher who clearly has experience? And the best thing you can do for yourself, which I did, is I need not make a decision for a few days. Let this thing mm. simmer. Go, let it go on ice for a bit. Don't think about it. And by then, I will be less. By the time I come back to the topic, I will be less obsessive about it. Thankfully for me, I took the publisher's advice, and my pre-orders mm. were a great success. As you know, these things are measured. Uh, so it can happen to all of us. I. You're right. Sometimes it's it may be driven by personality, but I think more of us are susceptible to overconfidence than we realize. It can happen anytime mm-hmm. in any decision. You just have to be aware of your own body <laughs> signals on when are yeah. you becoming overconfident. Well, and I wonder um, how much this this overconfidence is built up from something you write about in, in the book, um, misunderstanding cause and effect relationships, mm-hmm. which I thought was a, a fascinating chapter where, um, you know, somebody may look at uh, their, their, their successes and they'll say, well, my success was the result of what I did. Even if some of those behaviors where you think of some executives who, you know, um, you know, there's stories about some executives who, uh, are bullies or treat people badly or, um, you know, are unfair to a supplier or business partner. And maybe they rationalize it and like, well, I was successful because I did those things. But cause and effect is, uh, as you write about, more complicated than that, perhaps. What, what, what are your thoughts on, let's say, a scenario like that, where we run the risk of um, bad behaviors being reinforced inadvertently? because we think it led to success. Right. Right. Two, so two, there are two parts to that. One is um, our tendency to explain success after it happens. And I have this image, which is meant to be, uh, you know, as it's a satire, that when you ask a CEO, you know, one of those startup gurus, very successful unicorn mm-hmm. CEOs, what is the secret yeah. of your success? And what will they say? They'll use big, fancy words such as we had the first mover advantage, Mm -hmm. we had a world-class team, and we innovate every day. What they don't tell, which nobody knows, is uh, we just got lucky. I went to school with the CTO, and we met up over in a coffee shop, and we actually came up with this great idea. Or our closest rival's founder had a drug problem, so he put himself out of business. (laughs) 
we and I quote research from Brian Arthur, who's an economist who's actually studied success, especially in early stage industries. And he says, no matter how much you tell yourself you had the right idea, you people underestimate those chance conversations. Chance meet run in with a buyer or an investor, mm-hmm. which led something happened. The risk of people falling in love with their own cause and effect success story, I did this, I did that, is that you may not be able to repeat that success because you'll try the same formula next time, but life will have evolved. And then you'll be surprised why that didn't work. And others are surprised. Like, you know, the board of the, the JCPenney, they were shocked that Ron Johnson did as badly as he did because he was a winner. Mm-hmm. And who are you going to blame? Everybody was confident that, <laughs> oh, he, he's got the formula. You know, yeah. he did it twice. Right. Uh, so the thing to take away for all of us is not to fall in love with our cause and effect. Of course, you need to know I did these things that were good, but keep an open mind to new information because life is far too complex for any one three-step strategy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this this phrase, you know, uh, bias for action is something that many companies will will trumpet as being one of their key um, values or principles or philosophies or whatever words they might use, habit, you know, people who succeed here have a bias for action. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you write about it in the book, that can sometimes be counterproductive um, if we if there's not the right balance um, between thinking and action. But um, the question is, you know, in your study of this, do you find it, is this mainly a Western phenomenon? This this maybe tendency to have a little bit too much of a bias for action? Do you see differences across countries and continents? I would say my opinion is yes and no. I Mm -hmm. I don't think it's, I know for a fact, it's not limited to Western countries. Um, I grew up in Mumbai, which is a Mm -hmm. big city. And it has the big city phenomenon of always being on the move, hustling, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. I would say people who are very ambitious, very driven, very bold, perhaps more of a risk for a bias for irrational action. Mm-hmm. Now, again, action bias is a behavioral tendency. It's not a disorder. It's not an affliction. Yeah. You can always arrest that tendency by being thoughtful. So there are then those successful people who are very thoughtful in their approach. So people like, You know, Tim Cook will talk about how much they deploy silence in conversations. You would think the American tendency is to talk a lot. And these there are leaders who do the opposite. (laughs) You know, a leader in the room who has a position or a title, but is not talking too much. You know, that's a leader and they they Mm -hmm. know the value of thoughtful inaction. So maybe there are countries like Japan where silent meetings or Leveraging silence is common, but then there are Japanese who are biased for action as well. Yeah, it's it, and yeah, it was probably a, it's a difficult or unfair question. It's hard to generalize um, that broadly. But when I think of, let's say, even within the automotive industry, which you know are, are my roots, you had um, you know the the Detroit automakers with their new competition from um, countries including Japan, and there's there's a Toyota expression which uh, I was reminded of looking at your book and the topic and everything, this expression is go slow to go fast. Mm -hmm. I'm curious your reaction to a phrase like that. 
I love it. Uh, so back in 2011, I was working on a uh, launching a meditation program in New York City. And I, this is before meditation became popular and mainstream. And we had this, I was in the marketing team. This is an all nonprofit work. And we're like, how do you tell a bunch of New Yorkers who are so driven to action to slow down? Like, why? It's so, they'll reject it outright. So we did some brainstorming on slogans and we realized that you can't tell a New Yorker to slow down. You know, they didn't move from Montana to New York to slow down. <laughs> so we came up with a slogan. Meditation helps you go faster in life by slowing down for 20 minutes a day. It was meant to be a marketing, you know, catchphrase, but in a way it reflected the dilemma of how do you convince people that slowing down will actually get you better results? And in fact, the book I wrote, Inaction, Rethinking the Path to Results, I'm presenting thoughtful pauses as a better alternative to getting results. So it's not about smelling the roses or slowing down for the sake of slow, slowing down. So yeah, I, I totally, with that phrase, I understand why that makes sense. It actually yeah. is a very profoundly truthful phrase. And it's not go slow, period. Period. It's intentionality around, let's say an example of trying to start up a factory, which is something I was involved in earlier in my career. There are some companies that would try to rush the initial ramp up mm -hmm. because of business pressures or sales, or they're building the factory for a reason and they want to try to get to full production more quickly. Well, then they may hit a lot of problems and, and challenges and there's a lot of problems to solve. But then you know, it's, it's, it's like the tortoise and the hare fable where the company that's more like the tortoise may put more time into planning and trying to get everything from their processes and their technology and their people in place. They may take more time in that pre-production phase and then maybe start production two months later. But then guess what? When they actually turn on production, it ramps up much more quickly, much more smoothly and can end up outperforming that factory that was in this bias for start production as soon as possible. So, I mean, it's a right. very practical, it sounds really esoteric, go slow to go fast, but there, there are real applications of that idea in a lot of settings. Now, if I were um, severely injured and I come into an emergency room, I want fast. Right. And there's a time for that. Yeah. Yeah. And fast, um, Pace is different from fast. You can also burn out when you go mm -hmm. too fast. Mm -hmm. So if you think of life as a long game, not just this immediate project or this plant that your, your teams were setting up, you kind of want to be around for the next phase, don't you? Because if mm -hmm. you go very fast, if you work long hours and just do what it takes, you might not be around for the next phase. You might have burnt out by then. So that's another way of looking at it is think of life as a long game, not just this thing going on now. One other expression or cliche, I'm curious to get your reaction to, this is more of a Silicon Valley expression, move fast and break things. Right. So in my corporate world, uh, fail fast became a mm -hmm. mantra. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to address some, some the phrasing. I also want to address the bias for action because it's actually the core values in Amazon. And Amazon, you know, came and ate everybody's lunch. And I'm in the retail industry, so felt the pain myself. Here's the thing. When the people who came up with bias for action phrase, they were trying to address the problem of analysis paralysis, which can also mm -hmm. happen in some industries. It was a very contextual phrase. In the context where you are frozen into inaction, 
or being fearful, not willing to take risks, yes, you've got to do something about it. It's better to take some action than just stay put. What I'm calling out is you brought up Silicon Valley. I feel we have over the last, say, 10 years, glamorized this notion of making a big jump for the sake of it. Mm. And being and, and glamorizing it and glorifying it. We glorify Silicon Valley founders who put their every last penny work, 80-hour days. And of course, they have access to tweet, Twitter and social media channels. They talk about it. They have followers. In the book, I share the example of a story that Adam Grant, who is an author, mm. you probably know him. Yeah, he shares. He's great. Yeah. He was a professor at Wharton and two of his students mm-hmm. approached him for funding for their company. And he asked them, so do you have a prototype? How long have you been working? And they mm-hmm. said, we kind of have an idea. And he said, have you spent all summer developing the prototype? And they said, no, we had other things to do. And then he asked them, uh, so when you graduate, are you going to go all in? And they said, no, we have backup jobs lined up. And he's like, you guys are not serious. You're mm-hmm. not the all out, you know, living in the basement of their mother (laughs) kind of Silicon Valley uh, representative. So he declined to invest. Those founders Mm. built a company called Warby Parker, Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) which basically disrupted the eyeglasses spectacles industry when they seemed to be lazy or procrastinating, Mm -hmm. you know, all those words that also have a negative stigma. They, of course, needed a financial cushion. They don't want to be living in the basement of their mom. I'm guessing. I didn't ask yeah. them personally. <laughs> they want, They were married, so they needed mm-hmm. a financial cushion. More importantly, they were taking the time to research what at that time was a very difficult industry to sell online glasses, right? You, I got to mm-hmm. look good. It has to be this. It has to be that. They were studying, like you said. They were doing the research, like in the case of the plant that they set up. And when they were ready, of course, they were not the first movers, but they were pretty much the only ones that survived to the scale that they have. Mm -hmm. When they were ready, they understood the user experience. They had researched it enough. And then they were able to grow very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, do you know the names of the Warby Parker founders? I would have guessed it was Warby and Parker. I don't know. I don't know their names. No. Very few people because yeah. they are not they are not on social media yeah. showing off that we had jobs lined up. Like that's mm-hmm. not a story to tell. That's so boring. Right? <laughs> it's what is more interesting is how Elon Musk works, sleeps in his mm-hmm. factory. That is such a the hero <laughs> of our times, right? Mm-hmm. So this is these are all reasons why we talk ourselves into why action is good, but we forget that's not the only path to results. There is another way and it may not suit being crazy about action may not suit you, but doesn't mean you're not going to be successful. Yeah. It's well said. Um, So I want to ask a couple more questions about the book before uh, we wrap up. Again, our guest today is Jenny, Jenny Upal. The book is in action, rethinking the path to results. I, I appreciate that you shared you know, your, your example earlier about the pre-orders and the pricing and, and some overconfidence. But two other questions I wanted to ask about your approach to writing the book and bringing it to market um, based on some of the things you've talked about here today. Like, was, was there any prototyping for the book in different ways? The, the text, the cover, the title, were there, were there times where you worried you were overconfident about any of those uh, aspects of the book? 
I uh, deployed an approach which I was coached on. So I did mm-hmm. become part of a book writing program. And I remember mm-hmm. the first thing they said is you should talk, start talking about the book in mm-hmm. social media. And my reaction is talk about what exactly? The book doesn't exist. Yeah. And what am I going to say? And I have a reputation. What if, what if, what if, right? Yeah. Uh, but I did take their advice because I was committed. And uh, so as a result of which I was engaging people on social media quite a lot. I had a newsletter. The pre-orders mm-hmm. became an opportunity for people to legitimately become part of my author community. So they were getting mm-hmm. private emails and talks with me. This is also the first time that I have kind of given up control over something I was producing as much as I did as early in the process. I am not, most people are not the kind to talk about something until they have a working prototype, like you said. But the advantage of giving up control, in in some way giving up control, I had to train myself to then be true to my vision, not get distracted. So all of that happened in the journey, but the huge, huge advantage, uh, Mark, was people helped me pick the title. I had a working title different from this. People helped me with the cover and people were so involved and they they enjoyed. It was funny. I kept thanking them for me for being part of my journey and they kept thanking me for making them part of my journey. Yeah. So it turned out to be a good experience. Well, good. Well, and the other question I wanted to ask, um, in, in, in the book, you talk about why taking breaks is a vital part of the creative process. So how, how did that idea help you in the writing of this book in action? Because of my personality, I have a certain tendencies. So if I'm stuck on a problem, my tendency is to double down mm. and spend more time and then not back off and not distract myself. In the creative process, I learned the exact opposite is required, in fact. Not only is it helpful, you, you, you better. I had to learn when I'm stuck with an idea or a concept to walk away from it, which is completely counter to my instinct. I have I've had deadlines. And I remember not doing something until close to the deadline because I'll go into analysis paralysis if I have too much time to think about it. So procrastination, I talk about that in the book. Procrastination is a strategy where you don't spend too much time on things that don't deserve that time. So it was basically everything I was writing about in the book. I tried it. And uh, yes, taking breaks, walking away from the problem can do wonders in clearing your head and allowing some creative ideas to come forth. So as an industrial engineer, any other industrial engineer listening will laugh at me. You know, when I was writing my last book, I, I started tracking time. So I was curious, like, how much time am I spending on this book? It might be a question somebody would ask me afterwards. So industrial engineers are used to sort of measuring and tracking and, and timing work. And it wasn't very far into the project where I just completely gave up on that. Because then the question was, what am I timing? Is it the time when my fingers are on the keyboard? Mm-hmm. What about the pauses between typing? What about the time I'm out for a walk or, or doing something where I'm thinking about the book? Does that time count? And then I, I 
quickly came to the conclusion of, okay, you know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't. It truly doesn't. And, and I'm, thank you for sharing that story because people ask me how long and I don't know what to tell them. I can tell them duration, but sure. I mean, it was the most, it became the most important thing, but mm-hmm. I was living my life, but I, so I don't know how to tell you how many yeah. hours I can tell you how many words I wrote. Yeah, exactly. I, I, this technology to tell me, and I agree with you. I do not want to become obsessive about time management. I'd rather give myself the freedom to come up with ideas, good ideas, because good ideas go faster than bad. I mean, bad ideas will go somewhere, but there'll be bad ideas. <laughs> well, if it's a bad idea, hopefully we recognize that and learn from it and adjust sooner than later, or hopefully we adjust instead of just continuing yep. to plow forward. But um, I'm glad you uh, got the book across the finish line. And uh, again, congratulations um, on, on that. So uh, again, we've been joined today by Ginny Upal. The book is In Action, Rethinking the Path to Results. Um, Really recommend you check it out. There'll be a link in the show notes to Ginny's website and again, the giveaway contest. Um, Ginny, thank you again for doing that. And thank you so much for joining us here today. It was such a pleasure to talk to you, Mark. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks again to Ginny for being our guest today. Um, Again, don't forget the giveaway. You can learn more about her book. Um, Links can be found in the show notes or at markraven.com slash mistake 139. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.